Hi, and welcome to Newsreel with Joe and Neil. I'm Joe. And I'm Neil. And today we're going to be discussing three main topics, but we'll see how it goes. Uh-huh. Some developments in eastern Ukraine, in uh, the Donbass region in the east of Ukraine. One major one that happened yesterday. We'll also be discussing the still imminent, maybe, maybe not going to happen, blow up, blow up of some kind of situation in, in Syria, specifically involving this um, chemical provocation that the Russians are adamant is due any day now. Um, we're also going to just kind of segue into something that's um, it's related, but we're going to we're going to be going back in time to look at a little episode that took place in the so-called Troubles in Northern Ireland in 1994, right at the end of it. And we'll um, see how that ties into our overall conversation. Mm-hmm. So the first thing, obviously, is the really sad news that um, Alexander Sarkachenko, the, I suppose he was president, anyway, he was leader of the breakaway Donetsk People's Republic. Um, I'm not sure if he was officially leading... Uh, the Luhansk Republic as well, but in any event, he was really the, the, the chief for both of those regions. Um, he was assassinated yesterday, brutally uh, blown up. Uh, initially, they'd reported he was killed. He only died on his way to a hospital, but in fact, he, it seems he was killed on the spot. So at least that's one mercy. Um, him and a number of bodyguards, I think, were killed. One deputy was seriously injured, and maybe there were other serious injuries. Uh, it was a pre-placed bomb, they're pretty sure, now, in the cafe that they were walking into. Or outside it, I heard last. Okay. Like in a car, right, on the curb right beside it or maybe something. Maybe in a car, okay. Um, or a vehicle. It's obviously early to, to say exactly what happened, but it was almost certainly a pre-placed bomb. Um, you would imagine that there's, it would have taken some kind of insider help, or we can speculate about that, but... Um, how well protected was he? You know, could you always protect against that kind of thing happening in that situation? Probably not. The guy was survivor of several previous attempts on his life. Of course, there have been a number of high-profile assassinations um, via bombs of other leaders in of the Donbass um, movement, um, not least. The two fellows by the, by the code names GV and Motorola were mm. killed in late 2016 and early 2017, respectively. And they were mili- they were military guys. One of them at least had previous military experience in Russia. Um, and in the three or four years they were with the Donbass militias, they would obviously have you know. Well, who knows? We don't know to what extent they had you know serious professional help from Russia directly. Um, but let's assume they did. Um, in any event, uh, they could not avoid being assassinated either. It's um, it's a war zone. A lot of people have ki- been killed. Yes, the situation there is more or less stabilized since 2015 with the Minsk Agreement 1 and Agreement 2. Um, the bulk of the fighting all took place right up to that moment when that situation was basically stabilized. But of course, there have been incursions and attacks and reprisals since then. And uh, notably, this trend—it's—it's kind of—it's kind of settling into a, an ugly stalemate that's all too familiar. Where whatever the initial war or reason for their up, uprising, revolution, civil war, 
mm-hmm. um, and so on. Once there's a standoff, it, it these situations tend to end up in this kind of um, tit for tat counterinsurgency mm-hmm. situation where one side in particular, the, the Kiev side, the Ukrainian government has, will inevitably have access and mean, ways and means <coughs> yeah. of infiltrating mm-hmm. and getting close to mm-hmm. the opposing side. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it, it leads to, it leads to a horrible situation of just pure tension. Yeah. Although, I mean, that's, I think that's the, the limit of their, of their scope of what they can do, uh, would be to, you know, plant a bomb type thing mm-hmm. and, and then try and get the hell out of there type thing because they have no, unlike other kind of counterinsurgency situations, they, there's no actual uh, Ukrainian military uh, forces or personnel on the streets patrolling. They're not occupying effectively Donbass. Okay. You know, it hasn't got to that point yet. Mm-hmm. That could come in the future. Mm-hmm. Essentially where Ukraine takes back, uh, supposedly takes back Donbass um, and Luhansk and then effectively it becomes an occupation from the people, from the point of view of the people in Donbass and Luhansk. Um, it's an occupation by Kiev because they became independent. Now they've been occupied again. There's, you know, Ukrainian military police. You know, the, the, the locals are being treated badly. That kind of thing. And then you have a, a kind of a, a an insurgency or a you know a guerrilla war, a, a urban warfare type thing. Um, you know. Um, okay, it could be far worse that, than yeah. That that, uh, that then they, they they respond to you know that then they use counterinsurgency. Uh, the Yugis would use counterinsurgency against that. But at this point, it's like, <clears throat> I suppose you don't want it to go there, if you know what I mean. Uh, that would be pretty bad. So um, Ukraine, Donbass and Luhansk are in, in a good position, at least from the point of view of the people in that country and in, uh, and from the point of view of the Russians. They're, you know, they, ha- they have the advantage effectively by having effectively unilaterally declared independence, uh, kicked out the Ukrainians and um, kicked Kiev out, let's say. And... Um, and they're not, you know, they're they're being supported by by Russia, uh, who's kind of standing behind them effectively to to provide uh, support and defence for them. So uh, that's a good position to be in effectively. But again, like you said earlier on, it's a stalemate. Really, it, it, where does it go from there? You know, it's just a, it it goes nowhere. It's just it's it's stalled, um, and it can be stalled for a very long time. You know. Yeah, I that's. I think that's I think that's a, a good thing to hear. I mean, if you imagine like what like for them right now, I mean, Zakharchenko was their their big man. You know, they 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 liked him. Their there, president, their their leader, yeah, prime minister. Um, there's footage of um, security, just police, I suppose, patrolling the area. I think it was filmed today, the morning after, and the, I mean, the cops are trying to do their thing, and they're in tears. Like it must be like horrific. Mm. Um, to be going through this, but that's good to hear. That yeah, hang on a minute. This isn't. It could could be a whole lot of a worse situation where you're fully occupied, um, maybe been deceived into whatever coming back on the Ukrainians' fold in terms of allowing Ukraine what it wants, mm-hmm. um, full control of the borders all the way around to Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, but as long as they retain the f- actual physical military control of something, even if it's not even the two whole provinces mm. uh, or republics, and it's only half of each one of them, they have something. Mm-hmm. And well, this will, well, this will dig, help them to dig in. I mean, they will not be trusting <laughs> Kiev 
mm-hmm. anytime soon if that is indeed Kiev's wish here, you know. Right. Which it gets me to my question, which is like when I first saw the news, I thought, well, that was a really stupid thing to do. Because Zakharchenko, for all the vitriol Kiev will publicly, of course, say about him and throw at him, from an objective point of view, he was a very reasonable person who has successfully, for three years now, convinced the people that are doing the fighting and dying, and who had been dying a lot up until it stopped in 2015, to not respond to provocation after provocation Mm -hmm. and to minimize reprisals. He He would make sure people who were abusing captured Kiev personnel at one notorious case, one of one of his deputies um, had been taking prisoners of war, as they call them, from the Kiev side and torturing them in a basement somewhere. And when he found out um, Zakharchenko, he went sent in people to have this guy arrested, mm-hmm. and he put up a fight. And then the, his his forces shot him in that exchange of gunfire. They killed him. So you know he was a re- as reasonable. A leader you could hope to get, even if, from your perspective, this is a breakaway terrorist, as Kiev calls them, organization. Of course, they began this in 2014. They began the, this war calling it an anti-terrorist operation. That's fine. You officially see it from that perspective. But you've just assassinated a, a relative, a, as hopeful and as re- reasonable a person as you could have hoped mm-hmm. to be negotiating with yeah. in these circumstances. Yeah, but this is, you know, this is... It's, this is a Kiev junta, basically, uh, as run by Poroshenko, but really run by uh, kind of Westerners, Western politicians in Europe, and particularly in the US. You know, they're they're calling the shots as far as Ukraine goes, because as as everybody should know, it was uh, basically a US-inspired and backed, facilitated coup that happened uh, back in 2013. So... And, and that was for, for geopolitical reasons, effectively, to try and take Ukraine away from uh, Russia and to isolate Russia further, and it was just a very bad thing for very very bad idea from the point of view of well for the Ukrainian people it was obviously a very bad uh, idea and and Russia didn't like it either because you know Ukraine becoming wholly a kind of client state of 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 the West was just ridiculous uh, given the kind of ethnic and mm-hmm. um, cultural and economic and economic ties that. Uh, that Ukraine has has had for a long time with Russia. It's it's far more part of Russia uh, in all those ways than it is a part of anything further to the West. You know, so it was it was a situation where it should have just been left well enough alone. But of course, that's not what the Western powers do in their new Cold War against Russia. They're they're willing to sacrifice any number of lives in their kind of uh, in their in their great game war against against Russia and to try and maintain U.S. hegemony uh, and to push back Russia in in, in service to that. So. Um, yeah, it's uh, the new guy who's been named uh, as the interim leader. Um, don't have a name to hand anyway. He's issued a statement already reaffirming that their main goal, what's driving them, is accession to the Russian Federation, right? So, I mean, that right there goes <laughs> that's goes against your strategy if you're trying to win them back into the fold, you know. Maybe the they think they can do. Um, they think they can kill all the leadership and uh, force people back into 
the fold and then over time they will come to accept it. But Say, say that again. Um, well, maybe Kiev thinks it can kill all the leadership right. saying these kinds of things and finally they'll get the message. Oh, finally they won't want to go back. Right. They won't want to, won't want to join Russia. Because they're, they're, they're running a wager here. Kiev's wager is that the new leader's statement that we, the Republic, breakaway Republic of Donbass in total, want to join the Russian Federation is a ruse and that it's not actually the, will the democratic of. will of the majority of people living there. So that's the bet. So, Or, you can, or at, least, at the very least you can break break people down or break their will or break their spirit where they've got, uh, where, where, you know, circumstances are uh, intolerable enough that they just will give up any any ideas of, you know, the, the price to pay for for reintegration with Russia is just too high, you know. But, you know, it's going to take a long time for the people in, in Donbass and Luhansk to, to accept the idea that they would be uh, treated respectfully and as equal citizens in, in Ukraine. Mm. And, and it would have to be a very new Ukraine. I mean, and they had every right and every reasonable uh, cause to, uh, to to break away and declare independence after that coup in, uh, in, in 2013. It was backed by the U.S. because, you know, <clears throat> they were, I mean, one of, the made, one of the first things that they were, that they were going through and which they did afterwards was <clears throat> to outlaw the Russian language. Uh, Russia was effectively a second language in, in Ukraine up until then. They had, and since then, they basically um, removed that from the from the constitution that Russia is no longer mm-hmm. accept, acceptable as a language. And what, what are people who speak Russian as their who are ethnic Russians and who speak Russian? What are they meant to think about that when that when that kind of a law is passed in the country? What does it what does it suggest? We're about, not welcome here. Well, exactly. So well, then we'll leave. But no, you're not allowed to. Um, I think I think maybe they'd like them to leave, but without the land. Yeah, go exactly. and do that. Right. And, uh, right. uh, Which is something possible. like two million of them did. Yeah, quite a number of them did. But at the same time, those people, as much as they're ethnic Russians and stuff, they're born and they uh, they were born and they grew up on, and their their ancestors yeah. came from a lot of them came from that part of, of yeah. Ukraine, which you know you could call as call it as part of Russia effectively. So why should they move? You know, uh, that that idea that people would just give up their land. Like, so why would you fight for a piece of land? Just go somewhere else and live somewhere else. It's ridiculous. It's the kind of thing they really say to the. The Palestinians, you know, just leave. But why, you know, the Palestinians just stupid, like living in an open air prison for like decades, just because they're not willing to go to, uh, you know, Jordan, fifty or... miles away, basically, uh, and, and and set up home. Well, no, there's obviously something, uh, and it's not it's not a new thing. Obviously, it's it's what wars have been fought about, fought over throughout history is an attachment, uh, uh, people's attachment to to the land yeah. and, and the place that they were born, the place that their parents and their grandparents, etc came from and this is my home and I'm not going to go you know and there's a very strong attachment to that the idea of just becoming well but if you leave immediately you're an immigrant even if you go to a friendly country it's not your country it's not the place maybe they don't speak the same language that they do and obviously in the case of Ukraine that they speak the same language but still it's not the environment the place that you grow up in it's not your community you know and yeah. there's a, there, I mean people will fight uh, for that that's very important to people you know and yeah. has been throughout history so anybody who but of course, that's ignored. That, those kind of considerations are ignored, you know, by people who just want to see these in these situations. Politicians who just want those people out of there, basically, because they're a problem for me, you know, or Palestinian problem, or our Donbass problem, you know. Just remove them, get them out of the way. But well, it's not so simple, you know. Uh, and you should know that, and you do know that if you stop and think about it. But you know, anyway, this uh, move is obviously provocative. Um, is it terrorism for, the, for terrorism's sake, or? 
given that Ukraine is really a zombie state with whoever's hands want to reach in and control it, feel free. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of the United States, which the Russian foreign ministry spokeswoman said immediately, you know, it's almost certainly a CIA involvement in directing this. If it's a provocation, what is it to provoke? What, to to ignite, reignite, reignite the, the conflict. Reignite the conflict yeah. Get them fighting again. Yeah. Of course, America loves people to fight each other. America loves it when people fight each other. So do, you know, the Brits and, and many other European powers love it when, when countries that they have an interest in are embroiled in some kind of a, of war because they can stand back. Well, first of all, they make a lot of money from supplying weapons and also they can stand back and then and they can, you know, help one side against another, that kind of thing. But ultimately, they can they stand to benefit from when they would, uh, after the conflict kind of eventually runs its course, uh, they stand a benefit by by moving in to the uh, the ruins effectively uh, and taking over. You know, there's there's a very clear advantage there for or opportunity for for people with that kind of mindset to do that. And so they're I'm very happy to start conflicts. This situation might blow up, but that doesn't cost us anything because we've got plenty of time. Yeah, that doesn't cost we'll them anything. It, we'll, let it play out. Yeah. we'll let it play out, and then yeah. we'll if it gives Russia a headache. Right, Absolutely. it's a causing the more Absolutely. immediate short-term problem for Russia because that puts pressure on Putin to do something. Right, to to to, to focus on on there to to maybe move forces, move military forces to there, etc. You know, so yeah. Um, Absolutely. It's all, I mean, the motivation, you talk about um, means, motive and opportunity, it's all on, right there for, for the Americans in, in terms of this guy's uh, assassination and, and mm. to, to reignite the conflict. I mean, America just loves it. Like. There have been a lot of rumours for really non-stop, but particularly since the beginning of this year that the Kiev junta was uh, building up forces with a view to attacking head-on, militarily attacking um, the breakaway republics. Um, they haven't done that yet, but here, here's something. They haven't attacked in the way that everyone thought, but mm-hmm. they have done something, you know? Right. <clears throat> that might actually produce the same result. Yeah. But it's not likely, is it? Because that's... No, you have to... That's have to. The, we, what we've been saying all these years is that all of this is done always with, a, at least part of it is done with a mind to provoking Putin to respond. Right. And what has he done? Right. He doesn't. Well, he never responds the way they want him to, so... Right. Uh, and that's a sign of a, of a smart person. Um, not necessarily a very smart person, but, you know, someone who at least is knows their enemy and has some self-control, effectively. You know, just isn't isn't uh, a kind of a knee-jerk, reactionary-type person, you know. Uh, uh, Putin obviously sits and, and considers the situation and weighs up all the options and then decides what to do based on, on, on that. Not It's not an emotional heat of the, heat of the moment kind of um, a response that he, that he engages in. So, I mean, this is, in that sense, it's kind of stupid. But the problem is that it gives him, uh, there's a lot of people obviously in, in Donbass who would feel differently probably, you know, who, uh, who want to speed things along and want to do something about the, the Ukrainians. And, yeah. Uh, if they so, heard us sitting here tell, telling them, you know, well, you just have to, Waited out for a couple of decades. Mm. <laughs> Waiting anything right. out. So that puts pressure on, on the Russians to yeah. do something. Uh, pressure is put on the people in Donbass and the leadership in Donbass to then, that then puts pressure on the Russians to do something about the situation, you know. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, you, you cited the videos of the policemen walking around crying and stuff at the death of... of um, Zakharchenko. Zakharchenko. So, um, obviously, there's, it's kind of deeply felt and it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a real blow, a real injury to them. <clears throat> so... 
and, and at the same time, I don't know to what extent the Russians have full control over all of the all of the forces in the Donbass. You know, uh, the military forces, and whether they wouldn't decide to kick something off themselves. You know, in retaliation. You know, I kind of think they do, but they're just not in the way that's insinuated in Western coverage of it. I think they do, given that, as the new leader has said, our focus, our primary foreign policy goal, exactly, he said, is to join the Russian Federation. Given that voluntary, that willingness and everything, if, if everything is to align to that goal, it's inevitably going to mean that you're going to listen mm-hmm. to what Moscow wants. You have to see the big picture, basically. Yeah. See the long game. Or try to. Yeah, and that's what you're tasked with doing. I mean, it's a good kind of metaphor in a certain sense for life, you know, where you have to, you know, take the slings and arrows and not react, not fly off the handle, not, and just, and, and keep on keeping on, if you know what I mean, uh, um, pick yourself back up and uh, fo- keep your focus on, on the broader goal, you know, and not be provoked, you know, not, not respond to these provocations. And that word provocation is used repeatedly by the Russians, you know, not just in, in, in Donbass, but in, in Syria and other places, you know, they accuse the Americans of uh, engaging in provocation, deliberate provocations to try and create a situation or provoke a reaction, and um, but that's all. That's what they've done for for decades. Like so, anybody who doesn't, you know, at a high level, uh, government uh, positions in 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 the, among among the opposition, let's say the opposition to the West, anybody who doesn't understand that shouldn't shouldn't be in that position. You know, who doesn't understand that that's what America does, and you shouldn't respond to it. You shouldn't take the bait. Basically, mm-hmm. uh, you shouldn't be there. And I don't think there are many people who who, who do that anymore. You know who. Yeah, they've un- they've begun to understand the nature, <clears throat> the nature of the beast, let's say, and uh, and and how to how to deal with it at least, how to contain it at, at the very least, you know. Yeah, and keep keep on your on your path, uh, stay stay the path, stay the, uh, and keep pushing towards your goal, regardless of these attacks from the sidelines type thing. Yeah, the other obvious thing this raises is the timing of it in relation to you just mentioned Syria. Um, with the tense potential provocation slash advancement of the real, genuine anti-terror operation underway in that country. It's funny how they're a mirror image. You know, Kiev has an anti-terror operation, but it's not. And Syria does, but the West won't recognize it as such. Anyway. It's called terrorism. Right. The West calls anti-terrorism in Syria terrorism and what they call uh, terror. In, ter- in Ukraine, they call terrorism anti-terrorism. Yes. Yeah, they just turn everything on its head. That's why it's difficult to navigate, you know. People are basically told the opposite of yeah. the truth these days. Precisely the opposite of the truth. Um, is this something, is it done with a view to what's going on in Syria? Maybe, maybe, they're, maybe they're connected. Oh, the absolutely. Look at the, look at the broad, broad scale, kind of global picture, geopolitical picture. And you see uh, for the past few weeks, uh, the past couple of weeks, let's say, talk about from the Russians saying that the U.S., Mm, the U.S. is jihadist uh, mercenary forces in Syria that have been waging this war against the Syrian government and Syrian people for seven years, that they're planning yet another staged chemical attack to make it look like uh, and to blame the Syrians to justify, to allow the Americans to justify, America and their partners to justify bombing Syria again, bombing Syrian military and government uh, infrastructure. Uh, there's been going on for a couple of weeks it's been building up to it there's like it's kind of tense in a certain sense but the Russians have pushed back quite strongly by repeatedly uh, releasing information that this is what is going to happen this is how it's going to happen this is where it's going to happen they even got to the point where they actually described 
uh, that the, these uh, jihadists and white helmet types, you know, so phony aid agencies and stuff, and uh, had abducted 40 children <clears throat> and were going to mm-hmm. use them in this village to stage a, a, a chemical weapons act, whether it would, you know, detonate or explode some kind of a chlorine gla- gas bomb or something like that, and then they'd have the kids all ready for the photo opportunity. You know, that, so the Russians have repeatedly released this information, sent it to the UN, um, and that... We don't know if that has basically stalled, stayed the hand of, of, of the US. But, I mean, today they even... Um, uh, I think I saw a, a report today of them talking about uh, about that they also sent where they got the... that the Russians had evidence of uh, them sending, um, transporting the actual chemical weapons to the specific place, etc., you know? Yeah. So they're really doubling down on that and trying to expose what is actually a false flag terror attack in advance, this is the reality we're in today. You know, where um, you know years ago we would have talked about f- that idea of false flag terror attacks, and you get poo pooed as a conspiracy theorist. Mm-hmm. And today we have, at the highest level of international discourse and in the media, yes, you have people talking about openly the Russians talking openly about false flag terror attacks, describe, and talking about it as if this is just run of the mill now. This is yet another false flag terror attack, and giving evidence about how it's going to happen in advance. <laughs> it's just blows your mind type of thing uh, if, if you jump back 10 or 15 years you yeah. know this was all like this was all fringe talk about, it was very much fringe discussion you know um, yeah. and the idea of false flag terror attack whatever happened or that even exists or has ever happened is just was just nonsense you know but we're in a new reality apparently where it's uh, you know it's and it effectively it gets on it gets on CNN and, and the Western media where they have to report that the Russians are saying this they Still, at least have to deny it yeah, yeah. they, they poo poo it you know but it's part of the, the the dominant discourse these days, which is which is interesting. Uh, so yeah, the fact that that's been going on over the past couple of weeks, uh, leading up to a possible, you know, the Russians have what fourteen, thirteen, fourteen ships, uh, naval ships in the Mediterranean, a couple of subs. They're carrying out exercises, actually, military exercises with those ships and those submarines and planes, uh, starting today for the next six or seven days, for the next week or so. Um, and at the same time, you have U.S. submarines and U.S. ships arriving in the Mediterranean with equipped with Tomahawk cruise missiles, apparently gearing up for another attack on Syria. Um, so while that's all happening, you have this shooting in in, in Donbass, the, mm-hmm. the killing of of the of the leader of the Donbass. That, you can't dissociate those two, you know, from the geopolitical great game perspective. You can't dissociate those two events. I mean, yeah. You suggested that the immediate, yesterday we were talking about it, you suggested the immediate impetus for doing it, boom. Yesterday could have been as a, a petty swipe back at Russia for exposing in advance in such detail and before the world at the UN, directly to the White House, the details of this well, I call stage it, false flag attack. I call it petty in the sense that, from my perspective, it's petty. It's yeah. pa- it's a pathetic uh, move just to to kill one guy. But obviously, it's a big move to take it's, out the leader of, yeah. of of the Donbass, and it causes uh, it's it's a it's an it's a pretty evil act. Um, but it's petty and it's motivation. If you know what I mean, that's what I was descri- meant when I was saying petty. It's the, the motivation behind it, and the yeah. the people that would, would come up with that are just are just uh, in, they're pathetic people. Maybe probably would have been a better word you in know, their pathetic. minds. This it, is a great coup for them. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, a big well, move. Yeah. And and. On a moral plane, I bet they go, well, that's fair. I mean, you've just thwarted us with this move here. In Syria. And so we'll thwart you with this move here. But 
there's a qualitative difference between the two. One of them exposed the use of 40-some children, probably killing them to make it more realistic, and then alleging that they were killed by the Syrian you know, false flag attack. And the other one is actually killing someone. Mm-hmm. Te- technically, who, they may not recognize it was a democratic democratically elected leader of a country. Of course. Well, Russia, Russia that, Russia's goal has, has been to stop deaths, you know, stop the killing of people uh, to the greatest extent possible since it kind of entered into this whole whole game over the past, you know, maybe up to 10 years ago. Um, so it's the but, great... But the Americans have a precisely the opposite. America likes to start, start fires and people die in fires, you know, people die in bombings and explosions and invasions and stuff. I mean... You know, there's no point. I, I I don't really understand how anybody. I mean, I do understand from a psychological perspective, from a human psychology perspective, why some people uh, disagree with that and still stick with the Americas. You know, fighting terrorism and America's. You know, the policeman of the world and America's trying to keep peace and America's trying to bestow freedom and democracy on people and stuff. I understand that uh, people still believe that, but only from the point of view of of human psychology, where people bullshit themselves to an extreme degree and have the ability to lie to themselves to a massive degree and dismiss and reject facts out of hand regardless because it doesn't fit with what I want to believe. Mm-hmm. That's the only way that I understand people who who don't see the reality of the situation. And the reality of the situation is that, of course, you know, you go back to Iraq. America invaded Iraq because of 9-11. Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11 and it killed 1.5 million people in Iraq for what? For nothing. For, for, well, obviously they did for something, but it certainly wasn't because of 9-11, because Iraq and Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with 9-11. So that, that's one incident alone, one invasion at the very beginning of the, the so-called war on terror that ultimately led to the death of 1.5 million people. Is that not enough to make my case? I could cite, like, obviously several other situations, in fact, dozens of other situations, if you want to go back before 9-11, where America has involved itself in sowing the seeds of... Uh, are, are sowing directly destruction in countries leading to the deaths of, at this point, there's some conservative estimates of about 40 million people killed by American intervention around the world since the Second World War. I yeah. mean, if a country can be directly tied to the deaths of 40 million people, does that not, do you know, have you not made your case that that country is invested in starting fires and sowing chaos and destruction and death? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how how else to convince anybody if someone doesn't accept that fact alone, with all the details laid out. Then, well, then there's nothing else to discuss. See you later. You go and you stay in your little reality bubble, and I'll. I, I got a, I got a hint of the truth from one true believer when I cited that in an argument we were having about um, the evils or not of uh, Soviet Russia and communist China in decades past in the 20th century. Um, he was saying, well, they, they were just pure evil. And I was saying, yes, okay, but be careful with where you go with that kind of rhetoric because here's a basic stat, and it's the one that shows that up, uh, the estimated range, a lower estimate is that 20 million people were killed by the U.S. between 1945, so the end of the Second World War, and 1990. Mm. So that excludes the entire 21st century global war and terror period. Well, the 90s. Um, and the 90s in Yugoslavia and so on. But... Um, his response to that was simply, he dismissed it out of hand by saying, yeah, but those countries, they killed millions and millions of their own people. Mm, There was dot dot, it was left hanging in the air. He didn't flesh it out any further. But that there was some kind of flip in his mind where that was okay, therefore. if, If it happens abroad 
in the course of us trying our bestest to bring civilization to the fuzzy wuzzies, maybe they resist, you know, too hard the great things we can give them. Mm. And that's just the inevitable casualty of yeah, civilizing this world. But, but that's different to this, the it's, – it's psychopathic only when these places, they do it to themselves, that's, that's not ba- when we do it. It's based on the false belief that America was interested or was motivated or was actually – Intending to bring freedom and democracy and civilization, or whatever, to these countries, it obviously right. it obviously wasn't. You know, you just have to. I mean, it's fair enough. It's, you know, it's understandable that people want to believe uh, that their team is is a good and great team and it's fighting for all the good and noble ideals and stuff. But you know, you're a bit naive about human nature. You're very naive about human nature if you if you run with that, and you're only ever going to get a very simplistic, childish view of life and reality and the world and humanity. If if you stick with that, you're never going to really understand anything. And fair enough, you're allowed to stick with that. Go ahead, but you know I ain't talking to you. There have been two developments in Syria today um, that are tangential to the kind of poised situation that everyone's now expecting, where you've got the bulk of Syrian forces with Russian probably weapons hot, ready to clear out what they're building as the last terrorist stronghold in Idlib in the north west but is it really the last terror stronghold because look what just happened there was an attack coming up from the south today um they were thwarted by syrian forces still stationed there but um they ran into a bunch of about this is sputnik report here citing 500. the russian reconciliation center that some 300 militants attempted to capture the city of palmyra mm. again in the center of the country um, with a view to committing terrorist atrocities there, and that they had come up from the the U.S. near the U.S. military base at Al Tanf, right? Because you remember, there's that little pocket that's a blip around the border with, with Jordan, Jordan the that US is still is still controlled by the U.S. And the Russians have been saying, not too loudly, but between the lines and sometimes explicitly for more a year now, that Al Tanf is right next to a place, a Syrian a refugee camp, right. mainly Syrians, some 60,000 still, and there's some cooperation yeah. there where they're allowed out or they're yeah, recruited some allowed, and they're sent up. <clears throat> well, exactly. There's 60,000 women and children there who came from Raqqa um, and right. Derazor, right. Uh, the liberation of Derazor. Notice my bias here, the liberation of Derazor by the Russians and the destruction of Raqqa by the Americans. Uh, <laughs> That's the Russians have got to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, well, Derazor was significantly smaller in terms of population than than, than Raqqa, and, yeah. and Raqqa was. But anyway, you have sixty thousand people from these two cities in the uh, Rukban refugee camp down on the border beside Al Tanf, which is right beside the U.S. military base. The U.S. basically have control of the area, and they have access to sixty thousand people effectively if they wanted it. And of course, you remember out of Raqqa and also out of. Um, Mosul, there was reports of uh, ISIS, not just reports, ISIS fighters were given safe passage out of there in many buses. The question is, where do they go? Are they, did they all end up in this uh, refugee camp down in the south from whence they would, uh, from where they would, um, well, first they would receive some R&R, rest and recuperation, uh, and a bit of time to, to pick, get themselves back together and be, be facilitated to move Wherever, wherever the U.S. wanted them in, in, in Syria. Yeah, and we absolutely know that. That's not <coughs> speculation that um, in every refugee camp, in every place where refugees have come from Syria, 
ISIS have followed. Right. But that's the fact. That's been proven after the case. I mean, there are court cases in Germany now involving people, and it's now known they were with ISIS and they came as a refugee, yada, yada. So absolutely, it would be the same case with this camp at Al-Tanf in Jordan. But of course, the, the American pretext is probably, well, we're there to protect them. Right. But this, uh, there's a, there's a <clears throat> just to show you the, the, the history of this about the possible chemical weapons attack on, um, on you know, in, in Syria and Idlib, <clears throat> uh, that's, that the U.S. is talking, is saying, uh, <clears throat> may be carried out by the, the Syrians and the Russians have been saying, well, no, actually, this is going to be a false flag provocation. It's going to be carried out by the U.S.-backed rebels to justify the U.S. and friends bombing Syria. There's a, <clears throat> I think it's a New York Times article, if you just throw it up there um, on the page. Uh, this is back, if you look at the date there, it's June 26th, <clears throat> 2017. The title of it is, um, just light up, the title of it is, Syria will pay a heavy price for another chemical attack, White House says. That's two months ago. No, 2017, right? Oh, sorry. It's a year. Oh, sorry. That that that's that's an example of um, of last year's one. Yes. Uh, in June, uh, one example of that kind of rhetoric coming out of there. Yes, and that's in the aftermath of the Kane Shakun. No, the Duma one. The Duma was April, April twenty seventeen. Right. So then there's this. Right. Saying we'll do it again. Yes. Whatever uh, we know that, and that led up to April. This year. This year, when there was allegation in, in Duma. Sorry, this year was Duma. This year yeah. was Duma. Uh, but that's just an example of of how they set it up, I think. <clears throat> but the the time frame of, it's probably about a month ago or six weeks ago that John Bolton, just out of the blue, said um, pretty much the same thing as that headline just said, right. which is, we will respond if... You know, this, it just comes out of nowhere. They say that they've got evidence. They say they've got some evidence that, well, how they would get the evidence, nobody knows, but they say they've got evidence that the Syrian government is planning a chemical weapons attack. No, it's a dog whistle to it's terrorists. Just, so they just, exactly. So they come out with it, and then so John Bolton said this about six weeks ago, so they've had six weeks to basically put the put the details in, in place, you know, to plan plan the operation. And um, But like we said, the, the Russians have been pushing back against it. Now, there's a video uh, just from uh, a couple of days ago of this is the UK representative to the uh, UN. Uh, I can't remember her name. What's her name? Um, Karen Pri- Karen Pierce. By the way, Numpty Mac. She's Dumpty. now she's now Dame Karen Elizabeth Pierce, appointed Dame Commander of the Order of Saint Michael and oh, Saint George in the Queen's twenty eighteen <clears throat> birthday honours. But this is her. Let's just play that. This is her. Um, Responding to a reporter's question about, well, what do you think about the Russians saying this is a provocation? And this is her justification or her explanation of why uh, it, can't be, uh, it can't be a provocation. It must be the rebels. Uh, terrorist organizations in Idlib, why do you rule out that they would do, perpetrate such an attack? Um, because this story comes from the Russians, and as I have explained, it is much more likely to be a smokescreen for things that the Syrian authorities are planning to do. The way to deal with any terrorists who are in Idlib is to ask the UN to negotiate safe passage, such as has been done before. Do you have any sign that they're going, that a chemical 
uh, attack is being prepared? Uh, we ourselves, as far as I know, do not have information about chlorine stocks being moved uh, into the area. I find it fascinating uh, that the Russians claim to do so. Uh, and as I say, I doubt that there is an innocent explanation for that. If it's true, it may, of course, just be a Russian smoke screen. Thank you very much. A Russian smoke screen. It just may just be a Russian smoke screen. Um, so you notice that she's actually, she's, she's kind, of, kind of got deep in a conspiracy theory territory there, rather, mm-hmm. than, rather than accept the idea that um, she says they have no evidence that any chlorine is being prepared by the Syrian government. Uh, so there's no reason for them to think the Syrian government is planning any chemical weapons attack. But then because Russia says that they do have evidence, then that must mean that uh, it's the Syrian government going to do it. Right. So Russia just outed the Syrian government. But Russia is at the same time claiming, obviously, that it's going to be the, the, the terrorists who are going to carry out the, the chemical weapons attack. But they don't buy that, that that's a smokescreen, and that it's actually, thanks, Russia, you just told us that the Syrian government is going to do it. And therefore you. And notice, notice, yeah, and notice a reason uh, uh, why she would dismiss it, because Russia said it. Right. Uh, because Russia said that this is that the terrorists would carry a chemical weapons attack, it can't be true. And also, notice we said about terrorists. This yes. is this is part of the Russian or the the American. Effectively, this is still part of the America America's uh, war on terror, right? And she said that the answer to this situation is to allow the terrorists safe, safe passage. passage. And this is from a UK dame, Numpty McFrumpty. Uh, Representing the British government, I is saying that terrorists should be allowed safe passage as part of a US-UK-led war on terror. Well, since when did the script change and you suddenly allow terrorists safe passage? I mean, didn't you bomb the crap out of Iraq? Because well, I don't know why you bombed the crap out of Iraq. Well, I do know, but I don't know You're, the rationale. Didn't, didn't make they any not sense. bomb Raqqa to remove ISIS? Yeah. Where was the safe passage? Well, actually, there is evidence of the safe end. passage for some of them. Only at the very end, though, whenever the, you know, the, the, the jihadis supposedly had ensconced themselves amongst a lot of civilians that they let them out, you know. But in that situation, they killed, obviously, thousands of people in, in Raqqa uh, bombing terrorists. So now you have to let them out. Why does UK and why does UK government want terrorists to be removed safely from Idlib? Why, See, the problem well, is... Will we just send them to the UK or something? The problem is these days their brains are so mushy that I'm not even sure. When I first heard that, I thought it might have been a, not a Freudian slip. But yes, maybe, in a, maybe that's a, a classical Freudian slip where she didn't actually mean to say it like that. She, she, she meant to say, for example, give the people there, civilians, safe passage to, humani- to, to humanitarian corridors like in other cases before that. But she, terrorists got in there. I'm not even sure she meant it. Because it's like John McCain when he's like, you know, on TV, vociferously saying, I was there in a serious meeting and we all agreed we were going to fund and support ISIS. Like, it's, it's, it's a slip, but it's also the truth, you know. But was our brain accidentally saying terrorists there when it should have been something else? I don't know. I, I, but I think certainly that's the truth of the situation. And but certainly, yeah. certainly they've, they have allowed the, the U.S. and its friends in Syria have facilitated the, and the UK have facilitated the, the safe passage of what they called. I mean, the only thing, the only mistake I think she made there was to call them terrorists as opposed to rebels. rebels. Uh, that's what she's talking about, because that's what's an, at issue here, is that right. there's a bunch of, there's up to 30,000 right. rebels, slash terrorists, slash 
nutbag jihadis, knuckle-dragger jihadis, uh, who are being paid by the Gulf states, by, by Saudi Arabia and by the U.S., and armed and trained by them uh, in, in, in Idlib, in Syria, and they don't want them bombed by the, or killed by the Syrians and the, and, the, and the Russians. So they want them out of there. They want to call them rebels, of course, but they're not. They're a bunch of freaking yeah. nutjob terrorists. And, you know, um, and none of this makes any sense to me. I mean, it, well, it hasn't made sense from the very beginning, but, I mean... It might, it might make sense. If we go with what that she meant, what she said, ensure safe passage for the terrorists... Maybe she should have said rebels. Our our favorite, uh, the opposition fighters. Right. Opposition fighters. Yeah. Um, it, let's. We want to ensure a safe passage for them. That that makes sense in a way for me. The other question I had when this was brewing, I thought, well, there's no way they're going to do this again, especially now with the Russians exposing the whole thing in its details. Well, here's what doesn't make sense to me. What doesn't make sense to me is that in a country of 26 million people, 30,000 rebel, so-called rebel fighters, who uh, Some numbers who, are way higher. Right, but left in Idlib, in this mm-hmm. situation, 30,000 of them, um, and who no one doubts come from many different nationalities, mm-hmm. uh, would be being supported by Western democracies in their so-called fight against uh, the, the sovereign government of, that, of, a, of a country, of a foreign country. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, in 26 million people, 30,000 in this case is, is insignificant. They're basically a bunch of, it's the same thing happened in America. You don't even scale it up to the numbers, you know. If, you know, 100 or 200 or 300,000 people in America took up arms mm-hmm. and we're going to overthrow the government, 300,000 out of 300 million. Is that, is that, are they representative? Yeah. Is that democratic? Is that, would you argue for the right of those people to impose their will on the, on the vast majority of the rest? Is that what democracy is about? Mm. That's why none of it makes sense to me. It yes. doesn't doesn't make any sense. Y- yes, it doesn't. Um, from from the Western it, narrative, it, it, at that level, and also just at the basic military level, it doesn't make any sense. The momentum is with the Syrians. They can concentrate on Idlib now. They can do it in X number of weeks. Yeah. So I was thinking, well, then what? Why on earth bother to, to do this? They've taken it. You may as well accept that they've taken. Well, what if? They are as concerned, as she said, just with that simple immediate thing, that those 30,000 or more people that they view as a resource for future use, so they want to ensure safe passage for them to basically not lose this resource Mm. for further ends. Of course. At that basic economic level, it's like, well, hang on, that's ours. And so they're trying to put 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 a delay on the operation to retake Idlib to have a say in it, to be able to right. negotiate behind closed doors yeah. the safe passage of our people, our yeah. mercenaries. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the only thing I think about, an immediate yeah. practical reason but for another false flag provocation right now. But that's all, that's absolutely what the reason that they're doing it and the reason they've done, okay. it, done it repeatedly in the past, how the US and the UK and et cetera have attempted to... So Al-Qaeda to, can live another day? Yeah. To, to, to protect their interests, protect their, their people on the ground, their, their jihadis, their mercenaries uh, on the ground that are fighting a proxy war on the behalf of the US and the UK and Syria trying to overthrow the Syrian government. They're trying to protect their assets, right? But when I say it doesn't make sense to me, it makes sense to me at that level, but I want people, I want the government representatives to, to admit that, mm-hmm. to explain why they're doing this in a way that makes sense. The way they explain it doesn't make any sense. Because she's explaining that, you know, they should allow terrorists to, to leave 
uh, Idlib. It's like, well, that doesn't... You're, you're right. representative of the UK. You're fighting a war against terrorism. I've had to fill in the rest, but why, you're right, why, she hasn't explained why, herself. Why, why would she... Why would the UK government want to save terrorists when they're fighting a war on terror? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Explain yourself. Oh, you mean you support the terrorists? Okay, well, that makes sense. I mentioned that there were two things that happened in Syria today. Um, one of them was a potential series of provocations that were stopped um, in Al- uh, Palmyra, in the centre of the country. The other one did actually happen. There was a car bomb up in the north, right near the re- Turkish border. That was in the city of Azaz. Um, it ki- I think it's only killed a couple of people. But what's odd about this one is no one has claimed responsibility for it. And it's right in the heart of territory control, technically by the Free Syrian Army, but really then with the Turks, who have taken that chunk of northern Syria. So there's this mysterious car bomb that goes off. So there's a couple of things that have happened, but away from where the focus is on Idlib. So um, I, I don't know what that pretends, but um, I think it's one of these things where um, as soon as people, it's like as soon as you, a situation becomes fairly clear and you expect it to play out a certain way, there's something that comes in mm-hmm. from the side, you know? Right. Uh, which would be in keeping with the adaptive strategy of the only way you can conduct such an, a murky, dirty war, one where you never articulate exactly what it is you want. Um, because that gives that gives away you lose the war by doing that. As soon as you say to your British subjects or to a Western audience more generally, okay, well, yes, we support the terrorists, but listen, it's for our benefit. We'll get the oil, or at least yeah. we'll get a say in where the oil goes. We'll keep Russia back. We'll stay richer. You see, we're all in. Yeah. But no, people would reject that. You know. Well, they would reject <laughs> it, but and that's where I mean, it's been said long before now that in in the halls of power, basically, the way that politicians think about the population is that they're kind of simple-minded, you know, emotionally driven people who, who don't really understand how the world really works. They don't really, they don't have an adult, uh, you know, understanding of, of, of the, the difficulties and the complexities and the, sometimes you have to break a few eggs to make an omelette type thing. And, you know, they would, they would reject stuff ultimately that would be in their own benefit, if you know what I mean, like, like uh, the British or the Americans or whoever going around the world you know, uh, conquering or colonizing countries ultimately for the benefit, even if it's only trickled down, for the benefit of the British and the American people, you know? And if you were to tell them how you have to, what you'd have to do to go, to, to achieve that, to go about that, to creating benefit uh, for them, they would, on their, in their emotionality and on their kind of, on their, their moral compass would be, would be going a bit haywire there and they would, uh, <clears throat> they would reject you uh, reject their their government doing that, you know, killing innocent people, etc., to to achieve the goals that ultimately benefited the British people. So they understand that they have to, you know, long before now I've understood they have to keep all that quiet, basically keep all that silent. It has to be secrecy, basically, because people couldn't accept it. Uh, but it's for their own good. So ultimately, we're tasked with doing what's in the interest of the people, which means ultimately we have to keep secrets from the people because they don't understand how messy messy things can get, right? They so, don't understand how the world works. Yeah, and now that's that, that's yeah, exactly. But that's a, it's a well, self fulfilling. It's self fulfilling prophecy. Yes, if it ultimately if it's if it's benefiting you, uh, then you're going to argue for that and you're going to stick with that worldview. You're not going to embrace a different worldview, or mm-hmm. because that different worldview would involve maybe you not getting to be top of the pile type of, type of thing. You know, so um, 
but this is goes back to the, the kind of childish view of of the world that people have. People, if you want to understand how the world works, you have to embrace not embrace it, but you have to at least understand uh, it in its more complex uh, way that actually explains what's happening much much better and fits you know maps to reality much better. This uh, explanation, the, the more complex explanation. Uh, but it's not pleasant. It's not nice. It doesn't say that the world's a wonderful place and that our leaders are, are very good people who are always well motivated and stuff. Uh, but if you don't accept that, if you don't see the world in that way, you're never going to understand anything. You're always going to fall back on. You're, you're going to stay in your childish uh, view of reality and nothing's going to make sense to you and you're going to be scared, you know, because you don't understand what's happening. You, you have no way to interpret it and understand it. So it's, it's scary. You know, things just blow up and explode and... Uh, bad things happen and you have no way to explain it. You th- you're still stuck in, you know, but but I, I thought we were fighting a war on terror and everything would be good and you know, why is it all gone wrong? Well, obviously there's a different explanation, mm-hmm. you know, that you're not uh, understanding. You don't want to understand. So it's up to you. It's up to each person. Decide what you want to believe, you know. But ultimately, uh, our, our, our perspective is that... Uh, that it's far better to understand things as they are, mm-hmm. you know, warts and all, uh, rather than uh, live in delusion, you know, because, well, you, you kind of you could be setting yourself up there for, for, for problems for yourself ultimately, you know, because you'll end up walking into situations <clears throat> on, a, on a belief that basically isn't, isn't, uh, doesn't map, map to reality, doesn't match with reality, uh, and you'll, you'll make mistakes, basically you'll be using the wrong... Uh, um, kind of code book, I suppose, or yes, or, or, or map. Let's say to navigate navigate the world, you'd be using the wrong the wrong map, basically, and you're going to what? You fall off a fall down a hole, or walk off a cliff, or something like that. You know, yeah. uh, as an analogy. <clears throat> so it's much better to to get as as clear and accurate a representation of what's actually going on. But the problem is that people's emotions and their their desire to believe in in goodness and Sweetness and bunny rabbits and rainbows and unicorns, um, you know, um, it's kind of like an injunction against that. You know, they they don't want to accept the the harsh reality. Yeah. So it's a choice ultimately, uh, but not an easy one. We understand, but you got to make it one way or the other. <clears throat> and this is something that's hard earned. Or it almost has to be, nearly always has to be by direct experience, right? I mean, with people in general, individuals can learn and grow in, in, in many different ways on different tracks. But when you're looking at people as a whole, it seems they need to be enmeshed and exposed to this in the face on mm. a daily basis for a period of time. Which brings me to our mystery topic that I alluded to at the beginning of the show, mm. where we're going to go back in time. But um, there's a, a current story that got us thinking about this. Um, we have an article here. I think it's the headline with this new development. This is um, this was reported internationally, but this is the Belfast Telegraph version of it. This um, this broke yesterday. Journalist connected to Lockin Island massacre documentary arrested. Confidential documents allegedly stolen from police ombudsman office. What's this about, Joe? <clears throat> this is a story where two guys who made a, a documentary, effectively, uh, one of them's called Brian Mc, 
McCaffrey. Give me the other name there, Scotty. Brian McCaffrey and... Uh, Trevor Burney. Trevor, Trevor. Trevor Burney and Brian McCaffrey, two guys from Northern Ireland. Uh, one, Brian McCaffrey's a long-term kind of journalist uh, in Northern Ireland, and Brian McCaffrey is a guy from there as well who's a documentary maker, basically. And um, the journalist had been investigating this, uh, as referenced there, Lock and Island massacre for, for quite a long time. It happened in 1994, towards the end of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Um, and it was on a night of June, I think, or July. June 18th. June 18th, 1994, when Ireland were playing Italy in the World Cup in America, in the Giant Stadium in America. And uh, so the bar, small bar in this little small village, basically. I remember that date, but I had no idea about this. Yeah, well, it was one of many such uh, uh, incidents in the previous 20 20 years or so. Um, But uh, the bar was fairly full, but still a very small little bar. So two guys, three guys pull up in a car outside it. One's a driver, two guys get out, one opens the door to the bar, the other guy opens uh, opens up with a, with a machine gun, essentially uh, kind of like an AK-47, and shoots dead six people and injures a bunch of other people, all innocent people. The oldest guy was, oldest man was 87 years old, and five other people were killed as well. <clears throat> um, uh, immediately afterwards, uh, it was blamed on uh, loyalist paramilitaries, or they took responsibility for the Ulster Volunteer Force, uh, Loyalist uh, Paramilitary Force, um, that had been active in Northern Ireland, fighting basically against the RA and against the Catholic community in Northern Ireland. Uh, there are one of several groups who all were military groups who wanted to remain part of the United Kingdom and saw kind of uh, the Catholics in Northern Ireland and their aspirations to for United Ireland as a threat to their desire to remain part of the United Kingdom. So that's basically, in a nutshell, the, the essence of the of the conflict. Uh, I mean, the conflict really started back in the late 60s when civil rights marches and stuff uh, happened. Catholics were, in Northern Ireland, Catholics were second-class citizens. They were denied jobs, housing, schools, all that kind of stuff. And they marched for civil rights in the, in the late 60s, uh, and they were uh, treated pretty badly by the local police force and by these paramilitary groups kind of sprang up as well. And the IRA sprang, it kind of recreated itself from kind of 60, 70 years previous when they are fighting the British in the Ireland War of Independence. Uh, they reformed and a kind of war effectively start, uh, started. It was a kind of slow-burning war with 3,000 people plus all told were, were killed. But the IRA were effectively fighting against the British forces and the local police force, which was, you know, overwhelmingly uh, Protestant and therefore loyal to the, the British government and to the United Kingdom. Um, so these paramilitary groups were effectively used as, um, the loyalist paramilitary groups were used as kind of like proxy forces in the same way the jihadis in Syria are used by America and the British to fight against uh, the Syrians. Mm-hmm. The, the British government was using these loyalist Protestant uh, paramilitary groups to do their fight their war, basically, for them against the IRA and against, uh, not just fight the war, but they were also kind of keeping the war going in a certain sense, facilitating a war and stuff. There's many different reasons why uh, they, they would have wanted the war to continue. Obviously, it was, um, one explanation was that the British were only only too happy to have a kind of a, a live battlefield for training of their soldiers on their own territory, in fact, which is very unique, you know. Uh, something that you allowed to go on for thirty years, you know. Um, so, but anyway, they used these paramilitary forces to 
to carry out their their the the the, the work or the agenda of the British government in, in fighting against the IRA and maintaining Northern Ireland as, as a part of the United Kingdom. And one example was that periodically they would <clears throat> go and kill, you know, indiscriminately kill Catholics, uh, as this example in uh, in, in, in Lachlan Island in 1994. Which was a bar in like the middle of nowhere. Yeah, a bar in the middle of nowhere, basically, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the investigation afterwards, this is one, again, this is just one of many different... Uh, uh, many similar uh, events where innocent people were, were shot by loyalist paramilitary forces who are effectively working for um, the British state. Uh, kind of indirectly in a certain sense, but uh, because the police force in Northern Ireland, uh, they're working for the police force. They were the first line in terms of connection with these paramilitary forces. Uh, but the the police force in Northern Ireland itself was pretty much controlled by British intelligence, you know. You had a, a branch of the police force called Special Branch that directly liaised with British intelligence with MI5. So um, the problem with this is that, like many other similar events, there were investigations afterwards uh, as to what actually happened. Well, there should have been an investigation immediately afterwards as to who who carried out the and the, the attack. And it should have been a justice. slam dunk because yeah. it had been claimed as their attack by they one, claimed of the it, then you had find, one of the loyalist groups, but then you had to find out who they were, right? Yeah. So they had the car that they used, they had you know various other and, and sample, DNA samples and stuff from the car, but... They found the weapons. They found the weapon, all that kind of stuff. But as it turned out, you know, there's been various investigations since then, you know, in more recent years, over the past 10 or 15 years, investigations into various different uh, or different uh, attacks like these to find out what actually happened. But the upshot of this shooting was that basically no one was ever prosecuted for it. And the police basically did nothing. The, the senior investigating officer, the day after it happened, he went on holiday for six weeks. Right. Um, and the police basically had all of this evidence. They came out later, the police had all of this evidence, but they did nothing. And they effectively knew who who had carried out the shooting and they did nothing. They didn't actually interview the person who they knew was the actual gunman uh, until for two months uh, afterwards. And when they did interview him, uh, they basically just said... Sorry to bring you in, but you have to be here for a couple of hours, right? Yeah, you got to be here for a couple of hours. We know you're just going to say you didn't do it, so let's just have a chat. So they have a chat. But the point is, this guy is more or less an informant, or he's known to the police, basically. Didn't they, in addition, in that interview when they had him in, officially arrested, also encourage him that you right. might want to select this guy as your next target? Right, right. Yeah, exactly. So, so they, they were, were literally using investigative procedure to target, ex- execute target the enemies of the state. Yeah. So... Uh, and, and, you know, the, the details of, of the investigation are just ridiculous. Like the families of the dead people never got, got no justice whatsoever. I mean, they, and they've found out in later years the, the, the depth of the collusion between the police forces and the British state and these people who go around killing people, right? Um, but they, I mean, examples are that they, when they took the guy in two months afterwards, the guy they knew um, had done the shooting. I mean, they knew in advance, basically, is the strange thing. They actually knew... Uh, they had one of their informants within this organization had told them that these guys were planning to go and shoot this bar. Uh, I mean, that's as far as you can go. You may, you could assume that it might have been actually the police who gave directions to go and shoot up this bar, you know what I mean? But you don't know that for sure. But certainly they knew beforehand that it was going to happen, did nothing to stop it. So then what do you expect of a police force that knew a shooting was going to happen beforehand, didn't stop it? Do you think they're going to investigate it afterwards? It's ridiculous, you know. They obviously didn't. When they bring him in, the, the shooter in two months after the, the attack, uh, 
they supposedly have interview notes and stuff, but then they'd say afterwards, oh, we, those interview notes were burned in, a, in an asbestos fire. Uh, def- defect, defective asbestos fire in the police station and the interview notes were burned, so we don't know what we asked him or what he was asked. But he basically wasn't, wasn't uh, accused of anything and was let go. Um, so anyway, these guys who made this documentary, who were arrested today, the reason they were arrested, the documentary is called No Stone Unturned and it investigates this singular shooting. Um, prior, to the, prior to the documentary, they, uh, the police ombudsman, which is the police kind of uh, oversight committee, let's say, that was looking into these kind of events, had actually said, yes, there was collusion between the police and, you know, loyalist paramilitary death, ga- death squads, basically. Uh, and there was many failings of investigations and these incidents and stuff and blah, blah. So, yes, saying to the families, yes, you're right, you know, um, it, <clears throat> there was collusion, basically, between the state forces and, and these people who killed your, your family members. But in the police ombudsman's report, <clears throat> he never uh, gives any names of, right. of who the people were. So the people, and the, the, the victims, the, the families, the, the, the family, the victims' families never knew who it was. That's, they got an admission that, yes, there was collusion and that there was a conspiracy involved here, but they and, never got to find out who did it. And this has been common <coughs> practice with all of these cases. Right, you don't say anybody's name. It's part of, it's kind of like Northern Ireland's truth and reconciliation process right. where, well, for starters, to, to have the ceasefire that led to the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, they agreed that anyone who would be prosecuted for anything that happened before then w- must be released whatever he or she had done within two years so that that immediately kept the you know the kind of, i suppose the baying for justice down and in addition when Provided. they do open up old cases to try to explain what happened they can get the most they'll say is yes there was person a b c and d and yes they were colluding so with you're right. police officer a b c or d but we're never <coughs> going to name them because mm. that would only run the risk of Vengeance, revenge attacks, right, I suppose. Right, endanger lives. Yeah. <clears throat> so anyway, the, the the reason these two documentary makers who made this documentary that was released last year called No Stone Unturned that investigated the shooting, <clears throat> the reason they were arrested today for uh, yesterday and they were released then, but they were arrested because of, as the, as the article said, <clears throat> they, they, f- f- they were arrested on the basis of someone had stolen a document that they had used in the documentary and the document that they had got from the police ombudsman's office was a document that revealed the names of people who were involved and uh, how the police knew uh, who were involved, etc., and the evidence they had. And it turned out that uh, the guy who had actually pulled the, the trigger and done the shooting, uh, his wife had, uh, had written, wrote a letter uh, to uh, a, a local politician after seeing him on TV, mm-hmm. you know, decrying the, the attack, wrote a letter and said, you know, I know who did this and here's his name. And the reason I know uh, who he, that he did this is that I was involved in, in, uh, in, in, planning, in it. planning it as well because I'm his wife. His name is Ronald, Ronnie, Ronald Hawthorne, the guy who did, did the shooting. And he, um, his wife basically <coughs> touted on him, she basically, uh, you know, uh, sold him out. Sold him out to the cops. Basically, but it turned out that she actually did that because um, because he had an affair. It wasn't so much that she was concerned about the poor people who were, who were dead, but because he had an affair. So a woman kind of, scorned. Right, this is the kind of level of people they're talking about. Um, so the police had this letter, and she also called. And the funny thing was that she, call, she not only she wrote the letter, but she called and left a, a message, an anonymous 
phone call leaving the message saying the same thing as in the letter to the police. But the police knew immediately from the phone call who it was because she worked in the police canteen that she was calling. <clears throat> so anyway, so they knew absolutely day afterwards. Yes. You know, even the people who weren't part of the conspiracy in the police, the ones even who wouldn't have been necessarily part of it, although all of them effectively were, they all knew, all of the police force in Northern Ireland knew this had been going on for 20 years where uh, the police had been facilitating attacks by loyalists against uh, Protestants, against Catholics in Northern Ireland. And it was, uh, it was an intimately local affair. Right. Uh, so um, these two guys were arrested because where did this doc- how did this document get out of the police ombudsman's office to these filmmakers mm-hmm. to release it in their documentary? Um, so that's what they're trying to figure out. So it's not just that uh, they have these in the, the names of all the people and that they that they published in the, in the documentary, but also the, the, the cops now. And it's the English police actually arrested the two of them for questioning. They wanted to keep it up, you know, over overseas, if you know what I mean, back in England type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were going to handle the investigation because it was a, a a leak, a breach of confidentiality, a leak of documents from the police uh, ombudsman's office. Someone in there had given these two filmmakers this this document yeah. that included the woman's letter <clears throat> and all the names of the people involved. So, um, And that's two years ago, though. The, the, the documentary was shown... It was released last year, I think. Last year, yeah. one year, okay. But one year later, they get in trouble for it. Yeah, the, the police almost released a report in 2016 saying everything about the names, and then they released the documentary one year with later the with names. the names based on this document. Um... And another, I watch, I've watched this, everyone, I think everyone will find this interesting. Obviously, it's a very <coughs> interesting story about one case, but um, do, do you get a sense of how how crazy it is to have this kind of counterinsurgency situation in a place like Northern Ireland? Because the filmmakers went on to try and find these people, and they found that this Ronald Hawthorne lives four miles No, not. Yeah, Today, exactly. He yeah. lives four miles away from where he carried out this this massacre, right. and that he pr- and had been was living involved there. in other massacres, and has been living there all this time. And they they got some footage of him, and he and his wife still living together. Right, She's, the woman who sold him to the cops. But of course, she she probably knew that it wasn't a problem because the cops weren't going to arrest and, and him and indict him. Because if he sa- if he went to court and sang like a canary, he'd be given all the names of the, of the police officers and you know MI five handlers and stuff who who right. who had been in contact with him the, all along. The I mean, premise would be blown open. The premise then that people should not know their killers because it might you know it might create social tension and, and all the way up to revenge murders. Well, it's betrayed by this because now everyone in this tiny community knows that it's your, it's your man who did it. Right. And they're not, there's no revenge. What got Durham police over and interested in it was that they don't want this going all the way to the top. Exactly. But that's been the case all along with the whole historical uh, inquiries, um, historical inquiries team, it's called a team of you know, kind of lay people or civil servants, whatever, who have been investigating all these police. or retired police investigating uh, all you know dozens, hundreds of of different uh, shooting and killing incidents, and and trying to and in the vast majority of them, it's interesting because the vast majority of them. Well, obviously, the problem here is that um, it's all about collusion with the police, with the state forces, right? If this was just a case in Northern Ireland where you had two factions of ordinary people dissociated from the state fighting each other, that's kind of like a civil war kind of scenario, you know, and they have no interference of the state except trying to trying to stop it from happening. Or maybe it, there is no one central state. 
Right, but in this case, you had the problem is that you had the state fully on the side of one of one side in the conflict mm-hmm. and actually facilitating the conflict uh, through their through their efforts and through their resources and stuff and actually uh, running. I mean, they had informants as they call them, and this, this is a kind of key word, you know, informant, where the state will basically uh, identify a a terrorist or potential, let's say, a terrorist organization or uh, a, a, a military organization put. You know, get a get a get a hold of one of them, either, and say, "Listen, you know, you're going to jail if you don't uh, cooperate with us." Okay, now you're our man on the inside, and you know the ostensible reason, or the official reason for doing that is to get someone on the inside of this organization to take it down, to find out what they're going to do, and stop the things from happening. But what the British government did was to actually put people inside these organizations, let them rise up to the top, and so that they could direct it, so they could use it to take out people that they that the state didn't didn't like, wanted to kill, you know. And even in the case of Northern Ireland, there's a good reason to think that they did it to fuel the conflict, to keep it going, to direct it, you know. So that it was it was their civil war, you know what I mean? The British government's civil war that they kept going. Um, and that, that happens, obviously. The British government does that. This has applications in uh, to, to modern-day Islamic terrorism as right. well. And in uh, both uh, in Europe and in and the US, you know. It's kind of like a template, and and that's the value of this, of all the details that have come out around uh, the, the the war in in Northern Ireland from about 1970 until about until the mid 90s. Um, the value of of the amount of information that has come out to show how the state involved itself in terror terror attacks, uh, and it's beyond any doubt it's official. You know, these are official government releases where they've had to actually sh- go some way to showing uh, that they're actually a functioning state, a functioning democratic state where they have an interest in justice. You know, mm-hmm. and when there's evidence that, the, that there was some collusion or corruption involved in the police, it has to, you know, justice has to be seen to be served. So to the extent that they have allowed that information out, it's more than enough to show uh, how the state, the British state in this case, goes about infiltrating terrorist groups and using them when it's politically expedient using them to further their own political the government's own political agenda and specifically by committing terrorist attacks right well if you posit that it's part of the the government's any government's agenda to sow uh, fear and confusion or let's say just fear and, and chaos periodically in a country in order to keep the people kind of enthralled to authority you know to keep them Manage type of thing to keep them on a certain tra- trajectory, and also even to keep a certain political party out to keep a dominant party in power, or whatever. If you if you posit that that's that that's possible that that the government would have that agenda, then the the way that they go about it is seen in 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 for example in Northern Ireland, it's seen with official documents, officially on the record to how, that they do actually go about it. That they have gone about it. The only thing then that you have to decide is is that, for example, in the UK with terror attacks, Islamic terror attacks, Muslim terror attacks, whatever you want to call them, in the UK or in the US, terror plots in the US, if, the only thing you'd have to decide is, is it in the government's interest to facilitate those kind of attacks to happen? Because if you decide that it, there may be a case uh, for it being in the interest of the government for those kind of terror attacks to happen, well then you have a full detailing, in the case of Northern Ireland, you have a full detailing of how they have gone about it and how they go about it. 
how it works. Yeah. Uh, point being that Northern Ireland shows the state does not stop or does not hesitate to engage with terror groups that slaughter innocent people when it serves their political agenda. So look at other situations, look at other terror attacks that have happened over the past 15 or 20 years and come to your own conclusion as to whether or not wherever the terror attack happened, if it happened in the UK, the UK government or the France, French government or the American government, decide for yourself whether or not there may be some benefit somewhere in the halls of power. It may have been decided that there is benefit to the government to facilitate this terror attack. Because if you can make that hypothesis, if you can see that as plausible, then you immediately, you have no problem with just slotting in how they go about it. And then the fact that they have a network of, of kind of like uh, informants and uh, agents and stuff who, who will make these kind of terror attacks happen. It's quite complex, but uh, there's a way to make it happen, you know, uh, and that they have no problem with essentially killing their own people because mm-hmm. that's, there's a, they have a track record of killing technically their own people in Northern Ireland over the past, over the 20 or 30 years of, of the conflict in Northern Ireland, you know. So it's very instructive, you know, because if you didn't have Northern Ireland, really, you'd have to, you'd have to rely on, there's some other sources, like you could go to the kind of School of Americas in the US and Latin American stuff about the way the US, there's evidence for the US having trained death squads that would go around killing people in South America in order to justify, allow the local government to take reprisals or not, not, not carry reprisals, but the death squads would be actually operating on behalf of the pro-American government in a Latin American country, taking out the opposition, basically, killing politicians, killing activists, etc., They'd use death squads, and you know, School of Americas was where, where a lot of these uh, individuals involved in terror terror groups or paramilitary groups were trained in America, sent back to South America to take out the opposition that the American government didn't like. Uh, so, and that's pretty much the same thing that was happening in, in Northern Ireland. You know, they were using terror groups, paramilitary death squad groups, to to kill people that they that they didn't like. You know, politicians individual activists, lawyers in some cases, the case of Pat, Pat Finucan, uh, that we've talked about previously a few years ago. Um, so, and, and to be able to, you, you know, if you want to take out, if you want to be able to take out your enemies of the state, you need to kind of have these uh, paramilitary organizations operating and to have them operating, you need to have a, a kind of a, a conflict happening as well for them to operate within. So you don't, Right there, there's motivation to, to not uh, to, to to keep the conflict going. Mm-hmm. You don't have a motivation to, uh, to to allow peace to break out or to push forward a peace process. You have a motivation to keep the conflict going, so you can continue to take out your the individuals that you don't like um, in order to, and then eventually, you know, push it towards a settlement that is in your favour. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what they're trying to do in Syria, basically. You know, by trying to keep the situation going in Syria. They want to keep it going because if a settlement were to be reached or if they were forced to the negotiating table or a peace conference table now, the West, America and the Brits, etc. would not be in a favourable position. So they say, no, now isn't the time to stop it. We need to keep it going. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but we need to intervene in Syria. So we need to find a justification to intervene in Syria. So we need to have a phony chemical weapons attack in Syria so that we can launch Tomahawk cruise missiles to shift the balance in Syria 
as, as I see it, towards <clears throat> to, to their benefit. Um, so that's kind of what's going on. And uh, yeah, like I was saying, Northern Ireland is, is very instructive because of the wealth of information that's available as to the fact that this went on for 25 years and the extent to which the British state forces were directly involved in colluding with, aiding and abetting terrorists to kill innocent people. I mean, it's just, it, there's, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's not even, it's not even a conspiracy theory. It's, it's, it's official documents. It's no, I mean? it's no fact. It's yeah. not even official documents that have been released by someone. This is official reports that have been filed publicly mm-hmm. to great fanfare in the media by official government institutions. It's the government itself saying that it did yeah. this and without they, going as far as to say, yeah, we did this in all the gory details. Right. But anybody who has two neurons firing can see that this is what was happening. And it, it's part of the reason why it's happening is the contradiction inherent in a state like the United Kingdom where it wishes to be seen as and fully believes itself to be among, or if not the most democratic state in the world, the mother of all parliaments. They launched uh, abuse nonstop at Russia and other countries for the lack of human rights, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. And so they are forced by their own narrative, to allow these kinds of investigations to bring at least minimal justice right. and recognition of what actually happened, which answered the question I had, which was that, um, well, why did... It's it's kind of tragic that it's it, it takes two or three decades for that to be yep. acknowledged. And well, in, a bit of in time. the interim... Far worse, probably, there is evidence for it also taking place in Iraq. Operations of this kind take place on much larger right. scales. I mean, so much more of the world is, right. has been ulsterized in the interim. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose... Uh, w- but the, 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 they want 20 years or so <clears throat> after the fact to go by so that everybody calms mm-hmm. down. A generation has got older that was directly involved in it. They're more, you know, they're less likely to, to get worked up about it and, you know, you know, take vengeance, whatever. It's only the children of the people who are killed now who are really concerned and stuff, you know. So it's enough time has gone past now that we can let this stuff out, you know. And it's, but that's old history, and you know? let's forget about it. But the fact is, it's not old history because it's happening in Syria today. Right. You know, that's, that's the point. But that's not, that connection is never made, you know. It's obvious to make it, but nobody ever makes it for, for, the, for the same reason why they cover it up for so long. It's because they don't want it to become public knowledge that Western governments engage in this kind of slaughter of innocent people for political agendas, for personal political agendas. Mm-hmm. You know, an example I was saying to you last night after, uh, like when I grew up around this, it was known to everybody um, uh, that this was what, what happened, that this is what was going on. I mean, you see it in the documentary. Um, so these people basically, it was 2016, so that's what, 22 years after the shooting, the families got the police ombudsman's report that said, yes, there was collusion between the police forces, uh, state forces, and these terrorists who killed your family members. And they are all, thank God, that's all we wanted. We just wanted the truth. We wanted someone to recognize the truth. But in, in the documentary, one of the, 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 the wife of one of the victims said that when the next day after the shooting, she was walking outside her house. Her neighbor said to her, uh, if you want to know, uh, who did who did this? Look no further than over there, and he pointed over at the policemen who were outside the 
outside the bar, you know, doing their investigation. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, and that's the truth his, of the matter that everybody intuitive knew. Intuitive hunch. It was wasn't that, even intuitive hunch. Everybody it, knew it. It was was the case. It yeah. was absolutely one hundred percent known. I mean, because you know, people Catholics in Northern Ireland grew up. Uh, not not just not just that that they had animosity towards you know the the local the, the the police force and the and the state the British state and stuff. It was that they were being treated. They were they knew very well from visceral personal experience that they were seen as second class citizens. That they were looked down on by the police force. That they had, could get no help, no recourse from the from the, from the police. You know, if they had any problems, or whatever the um, that they were that. They, that the police force were their enemy, and the police force demonstrated on a daily basis, and the, and the British military demonstrated on a daily basis that the Catholic community in Northern, Ireland, in Northern Ireland were their enemy. So, and then people, you know, people. There's, there's so many different events that happen where people are being shot in the middle of the street and stuff by, you know, like they have police roadblocks type of thing, you know, at the end of a street, you know, and uh, and so people are walking up the street at night time, and, and they know there's a police roadblock that checks cars coming in and out, and they see a car coming being let straight through the police uh, checkpoint and that car comes up the road and someone leans out of the back window of the car and shoots two people in the street. Two innocent people. I mean, what more evidence do you need that there's collusion at that point? That's, yeah. There's your collusion right there. So it's, it's that kind of experience of w- which happened many, many times uh, that informed uh, that guy who said uh, his neighbour, it's those guys over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a theory. It was, yeah. it was self-evident that er- and everyone knew that that was so. It wasn't and even the victims of the... Uh, the, fam- uh, the families of the victims knew as well, the ones who've been waiting on the truth all these years. They They've known it from the very beginning, but, but they wanted an official declaration that yes, was, that was they, the case. They wanted the end of being treated as imbeciles right. for saying these conspiracy theories for so long when it's like in your face. So they got, I suppose they get psychological relief from just hearing officialdom and mm. thus everyone, everyone else those other people, the opposing side, would right. also must acknowledge it too. Yeah. But it also has the effect of, like I was saying to you earlier, the tragedy of these kinds of things that people, most people will only learn this by direct experience of being up against this kind of in-your-face totalitarian system, mm. a really violent state violence, um, pretends it isn't, but it actually is. Everyone knows it is, but they have to pretend that it isn't and so on. It's, it's terrifying in itself, not just the, the terror that you might be killed prematurely in a horrific explosion, but the psychological terror is the key aspect of it. But what in the, in the acknowledgement that this is what happened, and this, is, this was the environment people were living in, everyone else gets to at least hear about it and it makes it, it's, good, it's good for people in Northern Ireland to know then that the the British media is reporting it, and that hmm. how many people will actually pay attention make, to make it the or, connection, or really viscerally go "whoa" and actually really see it all unfold. Mm. Whether it, very yeah. few. Yeah, I mean, you know, Catholics in Northern Ireland, it was it was absolutely transparent to them. You know, if you're a Catholic in Northern Ireland during the seventies or eighties and into the nineties, you go and have a you know you go and uh, have a protest against something or other, you know protesting against, you know, whatever's happened in internment or the shooting of this person or that, whatever, you go and protest down the street in your own town and the cops and the army will come and start shooting rubber bullets at you, you know. Uh, stop shoot, start shooting rubber-coated bullets, you know. Basically, it's a very close, uh, you know, not, uh, albeit nowhere near as, as, as bad, as intense, but it's pretty much the same way that the Catholic community in Northern Ireland felt the same way towards the local police and the British army and, and the British state as Palestinians 
feel towards Israel, Israel because of what they experience on a daily basis. So, um, yes, so you will naturally empathize with other people in a similar situations. Yeah, and you also understand how it works. You, know, you get a first, you get a, 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 a personal, a direct lesson you become, in, 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 how it, in how it operates. You, know, you're, um, you become woke, Neil. Immunized. Yeah. You're immunized with um, key knowledge of how things are. Yeah. And but that, that will be the difference between people who, like you said earlier, okay, fine, you can choose not to mm. really understand or believe any of this and continue to believe whatever they tell you, but you will pay a price eventually. Yeah. Well, it's dangerous, certain, certainly. You're not saying you will pay a price, but it's a very dangerous yeah, I don't mean path, that the, path to you take. Can, you can die happily and totally yeah. unawares, but... But, uh, you know, if, if this, you're talking about uh, a very... Lacking that immunology to this, this, this. this well, you're talking about is, yeah, you're talking about an awareness of evil in high places, and in high places being the people who people who rule over you. Well, and if they're you're, you're then putting your faith in the fact, in the idea, in the in the delusion that those people are actually no, they're not. They would never do that. They would never kill their own people. There's no one in in my government who would ever countenance such an idea. Uh, if you believe the the the, the, the fluffy pink uh, bunny rabbit version of it. Then, um, well, you are setting yourself up potentially for walking into a disaster where at some point in the future, you could be on the receiving end of the evil that, ha- that, that these people are capable of. Yes. And you, will, and you will deny it to the last minute because you have decided that you do not want to believe that anybody in position of, go- of, of power and political power in Western governments would ever do such a thing. When... I mean, you're talking about trusting. In certain cases, you're talking talk, talking about trusting serial killers. Well, yes, this is this is more specifically what I was getting at. Whatever about the more abstract thing of of not getting it that people in high places will do these kinds of things. What people in Northern Ireland and in other places around the world have learned up front and close is that the guy four miles down the road. Now living a totally normal, integrated life, paying his taxes, running a business, doing mm. something, and presumably therefore servicing clients of all backgrounds in mm-hmm. the north of Ireland, was once going around, right. getting his kicks, and yeah. probably being paid for, slaughtering people in the same neighborhood. It's like, uh, I call it totalitarian, because it's the psychopaths among us, and other character disturbed people, totally incorporated into a system that rewards them and it exposes the existence of such people in, in your day-to-day reality. So whatever about the, the, you know, the, the evils in high places, you get, you know, understand people, the psychology of people around you, yeah. that they are here, that, and, mm-hmm. and that it would, it would naturally make you cautious. It wouldn't make right. you distrustful necessarily of people, but <coughs> maybe a healthy distrust of people, I suppose, and mm-hmm. their real motives and what they seem like on the surface. He's such a good neighbor. He's, he, you know, yeah. he helps me with my lawn. And, well, but he, is he also a serial killer or inclined that way? Well, the know? thing is, it doesn't preclude you from being nice and friendly to people and having good relations with people, yes. but you have to maintain that healthy skepticism that you should have about human nature and human intentions and what is really, what lies beneath type of thing, what's really behind someone. And ultimately, unless you know the person really, really well, you can never be sure, and you can treat them nice, and you can have, you can have be friends for years, and all that kind of stuff. And you, and you know, you don't have to go around distrusting everybody and thinking everybody's out to get you or everybody's yeah. evil behind the scenes. But just know that under certain conditions, those people 
you know, you can't rely on them, basically. You know what I mean? So only rely. Not on only that, they're a mortal threat. Yeah, they can't. They they may turn out to be under certain certain circumstances. So it's a general view of humanity in a certain sense. You know that uh, you know there's no point in trying to love the whole world because there's eight billion people. Like, are you going to get to know every single one of them? And many of those eight billion people are really you know just in it for themselves. Ultimately, when it comes down to it, you know, if they're in a room on their own, you know, will they kick the dog or will they not? You know. Yeah. Uh, people put up so many facades and stuff that it's just, I mean, it's just sane to, to I mean, as long as you've informed yourself about, about human nature, you've had the experiences or you've read about, at least at the very least, if you haven't had the experience, you can read about human psychology. There's plenty of books out there that'll, that'll make this pretty clear to you that people basically don't really know themselves and don't know what they're capable of and, um, and, uh, and, and to maintain, a, maintain that awareness in your in, in your everyday interactions with people, so that you don't go too far into into trusting someone, you know, beyond what's what's reasonable, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you don't live in la la land, basically, you know, and have this idea that we're all one and everybody's nice and all human beings have the best intentions. That's not true, you know. Mm-hmm. It's simply not true. And the further people get from suffering, um, from I suppose real suffering, I'm not sure how to define that exactly in this context. But the further they get from suffering, the more they are inclined. To go, there is no evil in the world. Right. That's just a religious fuzzy wuzzy right. thing of old. And of course, they have to. They have to. And they have to trap. Not, well, they also have to. When when they get further from suffering and, and and into the delusional belief of everything's, you know, unicorns and bunny rabbits and stuff, the less likely, the more the more difficult it is for them to take to go to go back, basically to go the long haul back to to accepting that that's not the way things are. You know what I mean? So the further you go to one extreme, it's much more difficult to come back to. To the, to the reality, you know, mm-hmm. so you end up you end up just doubling down on your on your delusions type thing. And uh, when you're confronted with facts that conflict with your delusions, then it's much more difficult to accept the facts. You'll just uh, more quickly brush them aside, you know. That's so. Anyway, people should watch that. It's called No Stone Unturned. It's on um, YouTube. It's up on YouTube. I'm not sure now how legit that is, but anyway, it's, it's still available there. No Stone Unturned, Irish Troubles documentary, and you'll find it. So um, we hope you enjoyed our show. And Thanks for watching, and if you like the video, subscribe and like it and do all those good things, including the notification. The bell. The bell. It's called the bell. Ring the bell. Ring the bell for us. Like uh, cause, good Pavlovian dogs. Because we appreciate that, yes. Uh, yeah, so until then, until next week, uh, have a good whatever time of day it is. And we'll be back with another show next time. See you soon. See ya. Bye, everyone.